Chapter 8. Stay Out of the Brush The flight was pretty tamed. Nothing too crucial happened there, just some general discomfort. But when a flight lasted almost one full day, it was hard not to experience that. I found my transportation pretty quickly. Not too many Garbarinos were arriving from America, so that made it simple to find my driver. He was as polite as could be, but his accent made it a little hard to follow his speech. Welcome to South Africa, Mr. Garbarino, he said in a drawl, drawn-out way, like every syllable needed emphasis. Thank you for having me, I said. I looked around as he drove me through the crowded airport highways. There were plenty of homes that scaled from the lower parts of hills and into valleys, even up close to the summits of small mountains. It was breathtaking. It's beautiful here. Not as beautiful beyond the brush, though. Why is that? Because the brush be filled with many predators that could kill you, and I like flies, he said, the droll speak only making the minuous feel of his words more frightening. And I ain't just speaking about the big ones either. The little ones, even the baboons and the spiders, could do us in. Then I'll just stay out of the bush then. Brush, he corrected. Brush. He leered at me through the rearview mirror, and his cold, intense glare unnerved me more than his story. I looked away and just focused on the scenery, opposite the brush. My enigmatic chauffeur had reached my hotel as the sun was setting. It was too late tonight, so I would meet with the director, Mr. Michaels, in the early morning. For now, I was going to avoid the smaller creatures, assuming the hotel had flawless security that the big animals could not possibly pass through unnoticed. My bedroom was pretty amazing compared to my one-room apartment back home, which was more of a sad comment on my life. This hotel room was one-up to my former living arrangements back home. The sheets were incredibly soft and full, like fluffy clouds made out of wool. The drapes and television were pretty classy, too, as in better than the ones I owned that Amber was taking care of for me. I packed my bags into the closet and then sank on top of my bed sheets, and they felt like the clouds they looked like. I was asleep in no time at all. The next morning, I had a new chauffeur. This one was lighter-skinned, but produced the same accent when he spoke. Hello, sir. I'll be taking you to see Director Michaels. Thank you. I hopped into the car through the door he opened for me. The windows were tinted so I couldn't as easily watch the terrain and buildings flash through my field of vision like I'd hoped. When we stopped, he opened the door for me again and ushered me toward an office with a white linen doorway. I pushed the linens aside and entered, but my escort stopped there. At the back of the tent office, there was Director Michaels working on some paperwork. He fiddled with his glasses, trying to make sense of what I could guess were a series of numbers, perhaps relating to some sort of budget. I stood in the entryway, arms folded behind my back, just waiting. It took him a few seconds, but he noticed my presence with one quick upward glance. Ah, uh, yes, Mr. Garbarino, have a seat. I walked to the desk and took the chair opposite Mr. Michaels. He was still pressing the issue of the numbers as I patiently waited for him to speak to me again. It took another five minutes or so when he said, Be right with you. I would be inclined to believe him, but it took him so long just to say that one message, ironically. Another five minutes passed. Mr. Michaels? He raised up a finger. Just one second, Mr. Garbarino. 
I sucked in a breath, for it was all I could do not to yell at this man. I understand that he's busy, but manners are still a thing. At least, I hoped so. My early life had me questioning that law, but somewhere I figured it was true. Now, I wasn't so sure again. Mr. Michaels flipped the paper over, and after he looked it up and down once or twice or thrice, he seemed satisfied, nodded, and then made a little check mark near the top of the page. He placed in a cabinet behind his desk, and then clasped his hands beneath his jaw, facing me. Sorry about that, Mr. Garbarino, he said with a half-sincere tone. It didn't matter. I was planning on forgetting the waiting never happened, and that I'd just now shown up. How was your flight? Enjoyable, I hope. The ride here was much more fun, I said. I didn't get to see much of this nation too much through the half-closed window on my flight, but the drives here in the jeep and the car were both very eye-opening. I got to see so much of this beautiful country already. I'm glad you enjoyed yourself. Most first-timers only think of how long it'll be before we send them to Cape Cod to see the cannon fire at noon. I was stunned. There's a cannon? Yes, Michaels said dryly. It's cannon atop a hill in Cape Cod that they fire once a day. They generally don't aim in at anything or anyone, but it's still cool to see. I wish I'd researched this place before coming. Knowing that tidbit would have made my first night here something special. Are we close to Cape Cod? Not terribly close nor far, but it could be reached by a few select buses, Michaels answered. It would make a good field trip for the children, I stated. And it would. Or was that insensitive? I was not caught up on the history of the cannon. I'll keep that in mind for when we have the appropriate funding for such a trip. So, Mr. Michaels, where would you like to assign me to work? I was eager to start inspiring and teaching youths. Oh, wait, teaching. I was finally making some headway on the bet that Steve and I had made all those years ago. Not that I'd have any way of telling him that, but I still felt good about finally being able to teach someone. There's a small village, about two towns over. We have a few of our members already stationed there, teaching some of the younger children to speak English and some basic elementary math skills. And you want me to go there and help out? Yes, sir. You'd be the fourth member of that particular team. I'll start you out there for two years and see how well you can adjust to this nation's laws and practices. None are more harsh or as unpredictable as that village is. I was a bit nervous at the mention of unpredictable. How do you mean? You will find out in due time, but before I forget, we need you to take a photo for an ID badge. You will need it to walk around the village freely without suffering the scrutiny of the village officials. Your other teammates will fill you in once you arrive. Now, follow me. He stood and led me down toward a sectioned-off portion of the tent office. He shut the curtain behind us and then told me to sit down between two very powerful lights that nearly blinded me when he cut them on. It was like being sandwiched between two white-hot suns. My face and forearms seemed to blister lightly due to the close proximity to the heat they were giving off. Now sit still and sit up straight, please, Mr. Garbarino. That was worse than when I took high school yearbook photos and the photographer would come and physically adjust my posture like I was so horrible looking with slumped shoulders. And that's when Director Michaels came and took his swing at it. He approached me, smiling, as he took a much longer amount of time to try and fix my posture when I realized that I'd spoken out loud again. Sorry if anything I said was offensive, I apologized. No problem. 
Director Michaels took the picture at long last and then had me wait until it printed out. It took several minutes, but I just watched the pink sky slowly regain its natural blue color as the sunrise was reaching its peak in the sky, where it was easily able to tell it was around 9 a.m. Director Michaels returned with my ID badge with the initials A-C-A-A-C-E under my name, Jack Garbarino. He'd clipped it onto a lanyard for me and handed it over. I draped it around my neck, and I was now officially a member of A Can for Africa, A Can for Everyone. Take this with you everywhere. Do not drop it, misplace it, bury it, nothing but keep it with you at all times. Do you understand? He couldn't have made it sound more urgent. Yes, sir, I said. Good, you're free to do as you like for the remainder of the day. Tomorrow at 9 a.m., a driver will take you to the village. Be outside your hotel with all of your belongings by then. Got it. And last little thing, Mr. Garbrino. His look turned icy, like a lethal, frigid blade, ready to pierce any vital part of my flesh, which was anywhere, honestly. I swallowed and awaited his final cryptic warning. Stay out of the brush. I spent the rest of the day wondering just what lied within these forest jungles that seemed so scary to everyone. I mean, I'd watched my fair share of Animal Planet, but it didn't much seem like every inch of Africa was crawling with creatures that could kill you. I mean, I wasn't going stomping through the Serengeti, but to run with lions and hyenas and cheetahs. I was going to let them hunt other slow, rotund beasts. My chances of survival against even solo members of those species was low, but they always seemed to work as units on Animal Planet specials. I was prepared to leave an hour prior to the scheduled time, so takeoff was a breeze. The driver and I took very little time in loading my luggage into the trunk, but the road to get to the village was a bumpy one. It was pretty much a straight dirt path with dips and bumps all along the entire stretch of it. My conversation with the driver was a little rough to understand. When will we be there? I asked. Before dark, he replied. Could you be more specific? Before the stars in the sky become visible, he stated. So before dark then? Yeah. Lovely. And all my sarcastic angst was gone. We reached the village about two hours later. I had fallen asleep at one point, but my body did one of those mind-body splits like it did at Dr. Kelso's office. I saw all the scenery that I didn't actually see. I still don't understand how, but it was like a force had lifted me from my body to give me a perspective on my own journey. Not retrospective, but current-spective. The wet jungle leaves and foliage roadways had replaced the incredibly bumpy earthen highway we were on prior. The brush got closer and closer as the road narrowed. We were so tightly packed between the two sides that some of the leaves, mossy with morning dew, would feel like cool slices against my skin. But if heated slices caused pain, cooled ones awarded one a sense of being refreshed. I saw a thin smile dance along my lips momentarily when it happened. I had been awakened by the driver when we parked near the edge of the village, beside three other jeeps. I was fully rested, so when I peered over and saw firearms stowed in the trunks, I was kind of alarmed. Were there dangerous people out here in the brush too? Or did they never mean animals to begin with? Were spiders and baboons codenames for certain militant groups or something like that? I dismissed them altogether because thinking about that only put my nerves on hyperdrive and I wanted to appear calm before my teammates and the jungle children. The last thing I needed was my work here to be ruined by a terrible first impression. 
The area was smaller than I expected it to be, but that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It just meant it was much harder to get lost and accidentally stray from the village. It was practically one huge circle, or perhaps an oval. I'm not sure how to exactly describe the difference between the two of them. Riley used to say that a basketball was a circle and a football was an oval. It made sense, but I still couldn't grasp the idea, strictly on a definition basis. I found that many things were not as good as I expected them to be. The lodgings were made of bamboo, which was strong, but the bamboo looked as rotten as the tomatoes I would sometimes forget to eat when I bought them. I thumped the bamboo, and it appeared quite solid, scraping my finger in direct opposition to my assault. It looked to be about big enough to house no more than 30 to 40 persons. If I had to guess, the four drivers, the four members of the ACAACE, which now included myself, the students, the number of which I was never given, and whomever supplied those firearms. I was hoping that I wouldn't have to learn to use one, but given all the cryptic warnings about the brush, I knew I would need to. My driver and I gathered up my bags and climbed up the stairs to the second floor of the lodgings. To my surprise, the steps didn't creak beneath my weight, and I wasn't winded by the time we reached my door. The gym may not have exceeded my expectations, but it at least met the minimum requirement. I could walk up steps without doubling over. It was room 24. I unlocked the door and we dumped my bags near the front door. The driver turned and left in a haste, but that was fine. His role was done for today as far as I knew. My room was about as good as my apartment back home, and that was fine with me. Pristine and clean was good for most people, but dingy and run down, that's what I was accustomed to, and I didn't want or need anything better. I had called Amber last night from the hotel room, but due to long distance rates, we kept the call under 10 minutes. I told her all about the fancy hotel they put me up, and we both joked how I must be uncomfortable staying in such a lavish place. I wasn't uncomfortable, but I certainly didn't feel at home there. I felt like I had just joined a club without a single invitation. I was a wedding crasher. I was the guy who shows up late and interrupts an extremely sensitive or crucial moment. I unpacked my clothes and filed them into my drawers and closet as I deemed fit. The sunglasses that Amber bought me on our way to the airport were resting on top of the bureau. All of my nicer clothes, which meant polos and the three button-down shirts I did own, were in the closet. Most of my shirts, t-shirts with graphic art on the fronts or backs or on both sides, along with the multitude of my shorts and plus-sized pants, went in the drawers. When I was done packing, I was slightly out of breath, but my wits were still intact enough to notice the young lady who stepped into my doorway. Her shirt was dark and had the organization's acronym over her left breast, so I assumed she was one of the teammates. She was petite, even compared to Amber. She had short, cut, brunette hair, and I would have mistaken her for a boy if she not had breasts. Her arms and legs were little nubs of skin compared to my own but she looked more muscled and strong than a first glance would warrant. If not for the sun shining through the door, illuminating the minute curves of her biceps and forearms, I might not have noticed either. Hi, I'm Jack Garbarino, the new guy, I introduced to her. Hi, Jack Garbarino, she said with a youth's innocently shaped voice, like she had not seen the weapons in the jeeps. I'm Alexis Jordans, but everyone just calls me Lex. Nice to meet you, Lex. I stood and crossed the room to shake her hand. When we were both in the doorway, I could see the faint edges of other, smaller people at her side. All of them were dark-skinned, with dark hair and darker shades of eye colors than I'd seen in the States. 
Not like they all had black eyes, but darker hues of green and brown. Not many cobalt blues, but I think I glanced one or two. Are these your students? I asked. Yes, sir, she said. I teach them math. We've just started to work on multiplication and division. Oh, that's wonderful. I turned to the kids. Do any of you know the answer to 5 times 12? One of the cobalt blues raised his hand politely, and I pointed at him so he could answer. 60, he said. That's correct. Good job. I wasn't that good at multiplication at his age, so these kids either had better instructors or were just clearly smarter than me. I gazed into everyone's faces to make sure I hadn't just spoken out loud by accident. I didn't. That's Dende, she said. He's the smartest young man in the village. Keep at it, Dende. Being smart is just as important as being strong these days, I told him. And I believed it. I certainly wasn't strong growing up, but I wasn't living up to my fullest academic potential either. I wanted these kids, especially those who had the talent, to succeed in the areas I didn't. Of course, they could succeed in the same subjects I did too. Yes, sir. Dende said. He was actually pretty much me at his age. Portly, sweet, reserved, and was studious. The only difference we seemed to have was the color of our skin, and I didn't think that made much of a difference, but history books would label me a visionary if I'd be around in the times when Dende's people were shipped overseas to serve my own. So when do I meet my students? I asked Lex. Director Michaels was too big on the specifics of the assignment, so I'm a little lost as to what I'm supposed to be doing here. Yeah, don't hope for him to get more specific in the future. I've been here three years, and what you got is the best any of us should hope to receive. But let me fill in some of the blanks, Lex said. I nodded. Okay, so basically, we all teach the same students, but we trade off on days. I always teach science, but tomorrow, I'll be teaching a different group of students. We have about three groups of students, so until more come arrive, you're going to be helping me out as an aide. Is that fine with you? That shouldn't be an issue. Good. We're actually headed to class if you'd like to join us. I know you're still settling in, so you don't have to today. She was kind to extend that offer, but I wasn't going to stall this anymore. No, I'll be happy to tag along. No better way to settle in than to just jump right into something, I said with glee. Okay, so technically that was wrong, but there were two sides to my decision. Muscles and exercises were one thing, but new conditions and pools were another. The quickest way to get used to the cold pool water is just to dive all the way right away. I was going to use pool logic here instead of exercise logic. So where's the classroom? Right this way. She turned to the students. Class, stay in single file and follow behind me and Mr. Garbarino. Yes, ma'am. The class sounded off like it was a drilled in response but I'm guessing there were worse things to drill into children than manners. We took the students back downstairs and then we crossed the muddy part of the yard. The classrooms were built from the same rotten looking bamboo as the lodgings, but I'd learned that they just looked that way because of the weather, as Lex explained. I opened the door for Lex and the students to enter. Dende was last and I knew the look on his face. It was the same one I'd had pasted on whenever I entered classes in middle school. He was trying not to appear vulnerable to insults about his body, and when I saw him sit in the front of the class, similarities between him and I were so crazy that I saw myself sitting in his spot again. I was back in the fifth grade again. 
I had just started my first day of fifth grade, and it was the day I'd met Harrison. The porker thing hadn't started yet, so he took to calling me. Piggy, hey Piggy, shouldn't you be at the farm? He taunted. At first, I hadn't known to him whom he was referring to. Before then, I had not been teased much about my weight. He tapped my shoulder. Hey Piggy, I'm talking to you. What? I had said. I was confused. I mean, I knew what teasing was back then, but since fat jokes were never aimed at me prior to that, I was understandably naive to what he was doing. It didn't take long before I caught on and was on the verge of tears daily that he began calling me crybaby as well. If it wasn't bad enough, his buddies had joined in on the fun soon after. And it wasn't just during school, either. I had to suffer them bullying me on walks to the bus stop. It was crippling, the pain I felt, when it first began. In retrospect, I'm more angry at myself that it took over a year to stand up to him. I looked back up at the front of the class and saw him nervously tapping his pencil against his desk and his foot against the floor. Dende wasn't just dreading the insults. He was expecting him, and his anxiousness was showing. Without even looking, I could see the sharks approaching his beach, slowly but surely, biding their time until the tide could ride them farther up onto his shore. Lex wrote a few multiplication problems on the chalkboard, and one of them was 4 times 10. I knew that if any of these kids had met American children before, they'd seize the opportunity to make the joke I felt coming on, and based off of Dende moving the pencils between his teeth to chew on, they clearly had. Okay, class, what is 4 times 10? Lex asked and scanned the room. She zeroed in on Dende. Dende, would you come up and answer it, please? she ever so sweetly requested of him. I would say Dende was lucky, but then I saw that be nice plastered on Lex's face for the rest of the class to see. Of course. If Dende saw it coming, Lex would have had noticed it too. Guess she was more attentive than chaperones I'd been burdened with in the past. And it meant that Dende had a better safety net for the past three years, assuming that he's been with Lex the entire time. Oh, wait, no. She said that the other two teammates switched classes with her. It made me wonder if all three of them took the same degree of care for Dende. I had made it my first mission to find out. Dende wrote 40 beneath the solution line. The kid was correct again, and if you are wondering, the word that most other students would have written beneath it would have been portly. It sounded close enough to 40 and was a good synonym for the more rotund fellows like Dende and myself. I was astonished that someone like Harrison was able to be so clever. Someone probably figured it out for him. The rest of the class was pretty standard. Lex reviewed each of the problems and explained why some students answered wrong, reviewed the rules of multiplication to them, and then they were each given a worksheet of multiplication equations to solve. Lex was stern when she gave them a time limit of 15 minutes, one minute per each equation on the sheet. After handing them out, she joined me in the rear of the room probably to chat with me, but I suspected to keep a good eye out for cheaters. It was easier to cheat with the proctor in front of you, but behind you, where your eyes couldn't reach, she could be standing right behind you and you'd never know, unless you had better peripheral vision than me. You're a pretty good teacher, I complimented her. Thank you, she replied. I swear though, sometimes these kids are more focused on each other than the work. Yeah, but Dende can take it. I said in a hushed voice. So you noticed it, huh? She asked, also in a hushed tone. 
Well, I patted my belly. Let's just say I know where Dende comes from. Ah, I didn't want to assume so, which is why it caught me off guard when you noticed. That, and I don't think the other two members really see what he goes through when the other children bully and poke fun at him. That answered one of my pressing questions about our other teammates. I was hoping for better news, but it is what it is. I'm not out to change anyone's views on the subject of elementary school bullying. It's not going to change at any point in the near future. But I could change this one kid's perception of himself. Amber and Riley had done so for me, and I could do so for Dende. But first, I now had a new question for Lex. It sounds like you've been bullied yourself? I was tiny throughout most of my life, still technically am, but it was much worse growing up a good foot shorter than your classmates. It was every bit as daunting as being fat or wearing glasses. I can only imagine. I had the good graces to hit my growth spurt before sixth grade. If I hadn't, my tormentors would have had too much ammo. My beach would have been polluted with trash. She gave me a weird look. Your beach? It's a metaphor. A private one. I hadn't even shared it with Amber, at least not as far as I knew. If I had spoken of it out loud one day, she might have simply kept that knowledge to herself. Gotcha. So, any other kids excelling in math besides Dende? I'm sure there are other little geniuses on the rise in the other two groups, I said. Yes and no, Lex answered. Dende isn't the only one good at math, but he's the only one equally good at everything. Math, science, English. What about history? We don't yet have a teacher for that subject or a fourth group to support that subject. Plus, it'll take some time for the textbooks we order to arrive. I'd volunteer to teach it if we ever get a fourth group of students, I said. I disliked history most as a child, but I guess it was worth it to know of things that transpired in the past. These kids might even treasure it more than us American-born children. Do you even know basic American history? Of course I do. Who was the 12th president? Zachary Taylor. Who abolished slavery? She asked quietly. Abraham Lincoln, I said, just as quietly. Which order in the presidential line was he? Fifth. Wrong. Sixteenth. You're thinking in terms of money. His face may be on the five-dollar bill, but he wasn't the fifth president. Well, I got two out of three. On average, I passed, even though it was barely, I admitted. Try thumbing through the textbooks when they arrive, and then we'll see what you'll be able to do. We talked for the next ten or so minutes while the kids finished up their assignments. Neither Lex nor I were surprised to learn that Dende was the first to complete his entire sheet. He sat there with his hands clasped together, awaiting his next instruction like a dutiful soldier waiting for his next set of orders. Still, silent, composed. Unlike the rest of the rambunctious group. Restless, noisy, frantic. Later that day, after classes for the children were over, I was taken into a basement area. I was right with my hunch that firearm proficiency was a requirement here. Lex, along with the other two members, Henry and Nathan, were going to teach me how to shoot. Lex chose my weapon for me, a small thirty-eight caliber handgun. Henry modeled my posture to shoot with, and Nathan set up the paper target and supplied everyone with noise-canceling headphones. My shooting was better than I expected. I'd never once even seen a firearm this close up, but it was some kind of a drug for certain. The rush of power it shoots through your arms with each shot, it was like being on short burst steroids. Right after each casing clattered to the ground, I felt like I could punch holes in the walls around us. To call it exhilarating was an understatement. 
My hunches, for a second time, were also correct. Baboons were the code name for some loose, organized splinter cell roaming the area, but we had guards in place, so I wasn't worried. Spiders, well, that just meant what it meant. Deadly spiders did wander into camp from time to time. We didn't even have enough ready anti-venoms, so we were told to always check clothing thoroughly before getting dressed, shoes and slippers especially. Dark places are their safe havens. It was dinner time now, and I was sure hungry. I tried not to impose the rush for food since it was still my first day. I was positive that Lex and I hit it off well, but Henry and Nathan were more than standoffish after my poor shooting skills. I'd have to work on those two slowly, but surely. I would have taken the time at dinner to get to know them better, but then I saw another all-too-familiar sight, Dende having lunch by himself. Whether it was pity, or because I saw this as a chance to make life better for someone plagued by the same growing pains as me, I couldn't entirely be sure which force drove me to him more. The only thing I knew was that both of us needed. Me, to try and reconcile some flaws I knew I had back then. Him, he just needed someone to lend a friendly ear. He was so startled when my tray touched down on the table before him. The look he shot me was of intense fear, but was quickly replaced with a smile. Hi, Mr. Garbarino. I wanted to correct him, but his sense of manners was too impressive to try and break down, so I stayed Mr. Garbarino for him. Hi, you're Dende, right? He nodded. I saw you in math class today. You were amazing, I said. Thanks. I study every day. Miss Jordans says that a commitment is the strength to increase potential. I had learned quite a few names today, so it did take me a minute or two to recall that Lex's surname was Jordans. That's a good quote. I've got one for you, too. Should I write it down? Before I could even answer, he'd already produced a notepad and a pencil. The kid had quick hands. He was awaiting my words. Okay, well, it's not as much of a quote as it is advice. I corrected myself. I'll still write it down. Knowledge recorded is knowledge not forgotten. Dende. I took a breath. As you can see, I am like you in one truly obvious way. We're both very big men, bigger than the kids who tease you, and yes, bigger is better. He caught on to my joke and laughed. He had such a sweet laugh, and I wanted to give him more reason to show it off. There will always be people around who see the two of us as, well, comic material, but we're much more than that. People like us develop an island, a place no one can penetrate or traverse but ourselves. It's our sole defense, a great defense, though. Each time someone tells you or says something about you that you find annoying or abhorrent, let it flow to your shore, wash up in the tide, and then watch it slide on away. Do you understand? Um, he paused, thinking and reflecting on speech thus far. He was more than smart, he was comprehending too. You could show this kid a calculus equation and he'd work his mind tired to solve it, but he would definitely solve it. Is it like that one saying, in one ear and out the other? The kid was a genius for sure. Exactly, I told him. But simply ignoring the insults, taunts, and mockeries isn't enough. Having armor is one thing, but having a sword is another entirely. To build yourself up, to strike back at the negative words of others, you only need one word, one prescription to give you a strength they don't possess. It's a thing called self-confidence. Self-confidence? He repeated as a question. Yes, self-confidence. The power to know that you're the best that you can be. The best you that you want to be. Are you what you want to be?
I meant for the question to be rhetorical, but Dende was too devoted. If you gave him a question, he wanted to give you an answer. I think I am. What should I want to be? And there it was. For all the knowledge and wisdom this kid had, he was still a child. And I wanted him to be a child. So that's what I said. Be a child? What does that entail? That means you do your homework, you play with others, you make friends, you fall down, you get hurt, you get better, you grow up, you learn and you mature. I know it sounds like a lot, but it's the easiest thing you can do for yourself. So when dinner is over, I want you to find some of the other kids and play a game with them. Do you hear me? Yes, sir, he said after weighing options in his mind. He was still frightened, but I knew he would do it. He was obedient to a fault, but this fault was going to help him become someone I couldn't before I met Amber. Be confident in your skin, and no one can use it against you. And true to his word, like there was ever a doubt, Dende found a group of other boys from a different group, smart move, and they started talking and Dende was smiling and laughing. I couldn't hear it from here, but his laughter got the other boys into a similar fit, and I guess it had an infectious quality to it, too. Lex walked up beside me and nudged my arm with hers in a friendly way. Congratulations, she said. For what? First, for helping me to win a bet. Henry and Nathan believed that you'd just end up chasing off Dende. I bet that you'd be able to get him to listen. And that leads into our second part, that you were able to get him to talk to another kid. He'd been so unfathomably shy that we thought he'd never make a friend. She turned and looked up at me like I held some sort of magical power, a higher ability that she couldn't fathom. What did you say to him? What I wish someone had told me at his age, I responded. The week was a glorious time for Dende, I could tell. He'd been playing more often with those same boys he'd talked to after dinner. He had introduced me to them. The taller one, with the dark curly locks and emerald eyes, was Omar. The shorter one, with the eyes a shade lighter than Dende's, was Micaiah. They didn't seem at all too muscular either, so I guess Dende found them the least intimidating to approach. I would watch his eyes wander from time to time, and he would revere the guards with a sense of apprehension, like they were his enemies. And Dende wasn't the only one. All the boys, young as they were, saw their protectors as threats, and I couldn't understand why at first, but it sunk in. I grew up in a neighborhood where it was dangerous at certain hours of the night. Here, it was dangerous all the time. Weaponry that was wielded in open sight provided less comfort for the children on the camp than it did for me. They might have believed that they were going to be shot without warning. It was a cruel realization, but I couldn't do much there. That was an issue they'd all grown and solidified in their responses to long before I came around. Weapons? Bad. Hidden weapons? Worse. Exposed weapons? The worst of the three. I adopted their attitudes before long. I would grow wary of a guard marching right outside the classroom doors while class was being held. A strong military presence in the vicinity of learning was the oxymoron, military intelligence personified. It made me feel like these children were being groomed as American allies for what could be future battles on this foreign land. The thought both disgusted and infuriated me. I had not even spent a month here, and the well-being of these kids was one of my top priorities. Education was the top most of them, but I couldn't truly mentor these jungle children properly if they weren't having fun, and it didn't appear as if they had any while they were here. I wanted to sponsor a fun day. Lex told me how to get approval for that with the paperwork and the channel of authority and all that bureaucratic nonsense. 
The real information I needed was from the jungle children. I needed to know what it was they were starved of. Was it sports? Movies? Video games? I needed to understand what they wanted and how I could go about making sure everyone was happy with my choice. I got my day approved, but I only had a week to get an idea and plan it and have it. I called the jungle children to the auditorium and gave each of the kids a sheet of paper. What I want you all to do with the paper in front of you is simply write one sentence. The only rule is that the sentence has to start with, I really want to, and then the rest is up to you. Write whatever pops into your heads after you recite those words out loud. You have five minutes. Go! The off-tune chorus of the jungle children's voices reciting I really want to was the sweetest thing. I could hear the whimsy in their voices. They knew this had a purpose, and they were going to take advantage of it, and I wanted them to. They all wrote down their sentences, and I collected the papers. I'll look over these tonight and tomorrow. Based off of the majority of what most of you said, I'll announce the plans for Monday. You're dismissed. I expected a mass exodus of excited jungle children. What happened had caught me completely off guard. One by one, they came up to me and hugged me. Some of them were crying quietly as they did so. Were they that drained of fun around here that they would cry joyously at the first sign of it? I'd need to talk to Mr. Michaels about this soon. I read through the sentences and most of them were pretty much the same, but some were different. I really want to play kickball. I really want to play a game of kickball. I really want to watch a movie. I really want to play with a ball. I really want to see my parents. I really want my mommy. I really want to be like Mr. Garbarino. Something told me that one belonged to Dende. But after the procession of hugs, I couldn't honestly predict that with 100% certainty. I announced the activity the next day as promised, and they all generally seemed to approve of a kickball match. I requested from Mr. Michaels if we could have a bus come and to drive us and the jungle children to the nearest baseball field. He said that it'd be a gigantic pain, but I pushed him on this. I wasn't going to become another disappointment in the eyes of these jungle children. He conceded, and on Monday, a few school buses had come to chauffeur us to a baseball diamond. I told the guards to leave the guns behind. I didn't want the day soiled by their gun-toting habits. The field that Mr. Michaels had been able to rent out was small, but we'd make do. After we got to the field, we split up the teachers as coaches for the separate teams. Lex and I were on one side, Henry and Nathan on the other. We split the jungle children up evenly and then assigned the positions. I placed Dende at home plate, Micaiah at second base, and Omar as our pitcher. I wanted them all lined up in a straight line. They had good communication, so having them cover the center of the infield was a smart choice, something that I know Henry and Nathan would consider. I wouldn't even have expected that of Lex. If not for me, nothing like this might not even be happening today. The game was really fun. Nobody seemed to want to win just to be able to brag they'd won. All of the children had such pure smiles, so much fun on their face. If any of them thought too much about winning, then they were just spoiling this day for themselves. But, from what I witnessed out on the field, no one seemed that way to me. Well, besides Henry and Nathan. On the bus ride home, I could hear them complaining to one another about the low scores, both teams, and they were even worse when they said how their team sucked for having the lower of the two numbers. I was glad the kids were asleep right now. The games we played had tired them out. If they had overheard Henry and Nathan's scathing, insulting words, they might regret ever having had fun, and I would have none of that anymore. 
When we stopped back at camp, we tipped the drivers and escorted the children back to their rooms. After that, I had one last thing to do. I went and caught up with Henry and Nathan before they entered their rooms. I put an arm around both of their necks to appear like we were having a friendly chat when I was really using my weight and their momentum to force them forward. We stopped just short of their doors. Look, you two can be as pessimistic and standoffish as you want. I could care less, I said. But don't go out of your way to belittle something these kids have every right to be proud of. I don't want to hear you ever saying what you said on the bus ever again. Are we clear? I asked. Before they responded, I quickly added, I'm getting better at the shooting thing. Remember that. I removed my arms from around them and left them there. I didn't have to turn around to know they were nervous. I didn't hear either of their doors open until I was halfway across the yard. The next year and a half was a bit of a breeze for me, honestly. I got to grow up more than I anticipated. I became a sort of older brother for Dende, smoothing things out for him as he continued to expand his horizons. I had stayed up late with him, either sitting on the ground to carefully point out the constellations or test each other with mathematical equations we wrote in the dirt. I would occasionally fill in Amber and Riley on what I'd been up to and we'd laugh and share and share and laugh. Lex and I never split apart as co-teachers, even though we did eventually get a fourth group. Director Michaels had to bring on a fifth member, but was struggling to find one when I had the best idea. I recommended Amber. It took some convincing as she wanted to continue work as a real estate agent, even overseas. I got her to buckle when I mentioned that she'd still have plenty of time to tend to those duties since classes were only two hours a day, and that Lex and I would ease her load by helping her devise lesson plans. I was forced to await her arrival at the camp, as there wouldn't be enough room on the jeep for the driver, Amber, her luggage, and myself. It was nearly 3 p.m. by the time she arrived, and I wanted her to meet with Lex and Dende and some of the other students I'd taken a shine to, and they all got along famously. Amber and Lex were fast friends, which freed up more of my time to continue mentoring Dende. But remember, I said that was part of a long, hard, sad time in my life. Not a happy stretch. The road to this downward spiral had begun the moment I saw the news ad and applied for it. And the aftermath, well, it wasn't going to make anyone in this story look good. Unless you remember Steve. Chapter 9 Baboons. There is little joy in the next decade or so of my life. Well, in comparison to the tragedy that wrapped it up. I'm going to explain based on how my relationships with various people were headed to the crapper. First and most importantly, Amber. When she first arrived, Amber had loved the life out of Africa we were sharing. It was now a brand new adventure, both for her and for me. To be honest, it didn't seem as much of a chore when she came around just like the first day at Neptune Fitness, wasn't terrible. She and Lex were more similar than I had taken the time to notice. Both were full of life, jubilant to be working with jungle children, young enough to be their older sisters. The biggest similarity between these two lovely ladies was that they both enjoyed helping others, which was a given since this was a charitable group. But Amber had a need to help others that was beaten into her by her grandparents. That's why she first reached out to me. She saw a man in need of a little assistance, and she knew how to give it. The thing was, her thrill of helping me had ended, and so had a strong foundation of our relationship. I wasn't the sick, damaged puppy I was when we met, and it was taking everything she had to stay faithful to us. 
I figured at the time that it was an issue of my commitment to us, so I proposed. She said yes, and I guess the prospect of being with me through all my ups and downs, particularly the downs, made her say it. It had taken about three years of planning and a lot of work, but we were married. Lex was her maid of honor. Dende was my best man. He would be called a man now, actually, just simply for how he looked. He was only 14, but he had muscles, like Riley-sized muscles. And he was tall. His growth spurt was incredible. A six-foot-tall, reformed club, rotund member, but he still looked to me as a mentor, and I was pleased. Our vows were our own, and they were sweet, but I could see the subliminal messages behind hers. Stay fat, stay large, stay broken. I needed you broken, so very broken. I'd need time, years, to get you to be what I needed you to be, but I wasn't marching to her tune. When she could get no satisfaction from trying to mend my scars, she developed an obsessive need to work the students harder to achieve the level of intelligence that Dende had. She wanted desperately to find a protege to have cling to her advice, her knowledge like I had done. Thing was, I didn't search for it. I stumbled upon it. When that also failed for her, she and I grew hostile towards one another, fighting quiet little battles, meaningless, childish ones. One day, I wouldn't bring her coffee when she slept in. Another, she wouldn't pass me the salt for my mashed potatoes. Things like that. They became our unraveling, but the major tug was yet to be made. By this point, we were trapped a circle of feigned affection and hidden animosity, but we kept up face. Lex and Dende were still our friends, and they had grown to be friends, too. We wanted them to not have to choose sides for our splitting, so we kept things as amicable as we could. Lex and I were friends first, but order doesn't necessarily dictate rank. Yes, I was the first to be her friend amongst myself, Amber, and Dende, but Amber was more of her type of person to chat with, share secrets with, model herself after. Lex didn't share the same upbringing as Amber. Her desire to want to help people was similar to my own, but she and Amber both had an undying compulsion to fix others' problems. Amber only needed it more. Lex could pick and choose between her options, but she made sure to keep options. In a sense, she and Amber became those for one another without realizing it. I saw they'd reassure one another, the bond evidenced there. But it was fleeting. The more Lex started to grow from that, the more their bond was doomed. Any bond with Amber was doomed, but it seemed that way for me as well. Another couple of years had passed by and things had mended between Amber and I somewhat, but now she had a new issue on her mind, trying to get back to her original game plan of real estate in Africa. The past five or so years, she'd slowly abandoned that road, but it was here now and stronger than before. We had started our arguments for a second time, but this one wasn't going to end until we did. I was content with staying in Africa for the rest of my life. I would repeatedly say to her in hopes it would cease the argument for a couple of days. It would. And I'd enjoy Africa with peace for those same days. Teaching didn't have the same reward, albeit, since the students were back to being the same old types year after year. The quiet, studious ones, the loud, rambunctious ones, the bullies, the ones that slacked off just enough to get by. No one stood out made an impression. Nobody could differentiate themselves from any predecessor that fell into their group. Dende must have been a lucky break for me, for this village. Dende has joined the guards when his schooling was deemed over. 
He was better with a pistol than I was, and had much better survival instincts. I figured that he'd outlast all of us, even the students younger than him. I heard the deafening ring that erased all my expectations of his life the same time the entire camp did. We knew instantly what was going down in the brush. Baboons. The firing had ended quickly. After the initial panic I felt about the sounds faded away, I was pleased to learn that only about 20 seconds were occupied by the harrowing battle noises. And I thought that was the end of it. It wasn't. The guards came running into the village with several bodies. Each one was drenched with blood from a deadly, fatal gunshot wound. I didn't know three of the boys who'd been shot, but the fourth's cobalt eyes were trembling as if urging him to stay alive. Survive a little longer and then you'll be taken care of by the doctors already on the scene. That's the look I saw in Dende's eyes as he was dying. I kneeled down at his side and gripped his hand. His grip was about as tight, which meant there was still life in him. He could make it. He would make it. He was a 19-year-old, full of life, packed with muscle and intelligence, wits, and a few good other virtuous traits that I adored about him. The doctors tried desperately to staunch the blood flow from the small but seemingly gaping wide hole in his chest cavity. I was close to vomiting, but I would have hated myself any, if any bile had splashed him right now, so I choked it down. I couldn't believe my eyes right now, even though I had on my glasses. We had just finished breakfast this morning, joking about the routine of their sweeps and how it was always peaceful. The baboon cell had all but vanished. In all my time here, they had never once actually bothered us. I don't know what had changed now, or for whatever reason, but it was not fair to this young man. He had a life to look forward to, a brilliant life, one where he didn't need to face the threat of baboons or be done in by them. All it was ever meant to be was a routine sweep of the camp's exterior, that's all. A simple trek through the beautiful scenery the brush provided us those late nights we would stare into the starry sky. The brush's midnight glow was something the two of us would keep for ourselves, and it was now just mine. In the blink of an eye, the baboons had raised their ve venomous tails and struck at Dende's heart. He was gasping for air now, but he turned to me, trying so very hard to pass on a message. I leaned in close to ease his attempt efforts. One true... He gurgled, but then regained his breath. Prescription. Those were his final three words. His death was slow, painful, and agonizing to watch, but that was Dende for you, pushing through until he could solve problems. I'm not sure which one he was referring to now, but he had solved something, and I was going to find out what. But for now, we had four teenage boys dead at our feet, protecting us from a threat we now knew was very real. If ever there was a time to pack your bags and run, it would be when the young man you saw as a younger brother was gunned down by a splinter cell with an unknown agenda. I couldn't have packed fast enough once the funeral and general grieving over Dende and the other three young men was over. I asked Lex if she was fine with me and Amber up and leaving the fold so suddenly. She said she didn't mind as she would be leaving shortly after us. We learned that she too had family in California that she wanted to stay with and told her that she should visit us when she's stateside. We bade farewell to the jungle children, Henry and Nathan, director Michaels, and then we headed for our flight home. The next 24 hours felt like we were in limbo, weightless, like the world wasn't on our heads and shoulders anymore. It was simply, you know, just us. Well, our shells. My body-mind split had occurred, 
but my mind was recalcitrant when I tried to remember anything about what we may have said to each other on that flight. For all I knew, those were probably the last good words we exchanged. We got to her place, which she subletted to her sister in exchange that she never used her bedroom. It was pristine when we entered, but a hot mess when we left it. Broken lamps and a smashed remote, a messy, untidy bed, clothes strewn every which way. And that's when the tugging came at our last little bit of a raveled relationship. We went at each other with no pulled punches. I would call her out on her poor behavior toward me in front of the students, toward her students and her lack of respect of my dreams. She drove straight in with the rebuttal that I only thought of my dreams, that my devotion was blind, a pathetic attempt to mold our marriage into my own plaything, a toy. When it was used up and old, I would throw it out and find a new one. To that point, she made ridiculous allegations that Lex and I were engaging in scandalous, salacious activities behind her back. The nerve and the sheer insecurity of that accusation was as painful as being called porker, and then she brought that up too. She said how all of this, me, her, the marriage, Africa, it was all so I could try and reconcile that part of my life, to make it so that it could be rewritten, and she wasn't wrong there. The next part, the part where I was only using people as I see fit to make that happen, that was wrong. The pieces to do that simply fell into my lap at opportune times. I had not planned on meeting Dende, or even becoming his mentor, his friend. I simply wanted to do something noble. Meeting him was still a part of that, but if I could achieve two goals at once, why shouldn't I? The last thing she wanted to say that didn't sound like it came from her insecurities was that how I didn't mention her at all when talking about my goals, how she didn't fit in them. She was angry that she had wasted nearly two decades of her life with me, a man that said would never be as devoted to her as she was to me. She said that if I had put such thought behind my dreams, then surely if I wanted her in my life, she would have been mentioned. Serving me the divorce papers a year later, that was just her finally making the choice that she was right. And she was. I hadn't given her that time, that same consideration she gave me. I accepted the divorce papers with a smile. It wasn't a, woo, I'm free of that bitch for good smile. It was a, I'm free to find a new dream smile. Except, I had no new dreams, no other aspirations. Africa, for most of this part of my life, was my goal, my end game. Now it was just another checkpoint I had passed through. What dream could I come up with? Could one simply just come up with a dream, or was it something you just knew one day after a cozy night's rest? I decided that a good night's rest would do me some good. At the very least, it would clear my head and rejuvenate my body. It felt like I had slept for the next five or six years. I hadn't found any new purpose, and here it was, 2009. I was out of a job, almost homeless. Riley had put me up in his garage. It was nice and spacious, but I wouldn't want to stay here forever. In the final settlements of our divorce, Amber said I could keep most of my possessions. She said she didn't want or need them, but that I had. She was the college graduate with experience with real estate. I was the college dropout with an extensive amount of charity work under my belt, but with no real credentials, I wouldn't be accepted as a teacher anywhere in America. At that moment, sitting in Riley's garage, staring at the turned-off television set I'd had since my days with my mother, I gave my life a quick little recap. I lost my best friend, I lost my mother, I lost my younger brother, I lost my wife, and I was only in my late 40s at the time. Was I going to lose anyone else? Riley? Oh, who am I kidding? 
If I lost Riley right now, I wouldn't even register it, but the same could not be said for him. Riley had allowed me access to the main home when I needed to bathe or cook, which wasn't as often as I used to. I didn't have anyone else to freshen up for or to be well-fed for. Diets, exercise, what were they giving me? Headaches and a sour taste in my mouth, that's what. Riley was out to go and get a haircut. He did the grooming and the bathing and the feeding of himself to appear sane for his dates. He had many. I tried my best not to rain on his parade. He was still young, and in some people's eyes, so was I. He had a life to live. I had one to squander. I stood in the bathroom and stared into the car I let pool in the sink. In the still reflection, I could clearly make out my facial features, and I didn't like them one bit. I was covered in misshapen, patchy clumps of what I could call a beard. It was gross, filled with remnants of past meals. I think a few pieces of macaroni and cheese, some of that green foliage at the tops of broccoli to make them look like trees. I took the time to at least clear the leftovers from my beard, but I was not going to attempt shaving. I was already on suicide watch. I had tried to drown myself some weeks ago. Riley had run in and ganked me from the water when he saw water spilled beneath the bathroom door, but no shower sounds. Whenever he was gone, all dangerous items and rooms in the house had to be secure. Right now, all the windows were locked, the knives locked away in drawers, and when I turned around, I saw that the tub was covered with a tarp that was duct taped down to the floor. The tarp reached all the way around the tub. If I wanted to drown myself, I'd have to lean over the edge closer to the wall and reach down, but my body was not that long or flexible, so Riley was probably safe as long as he continued that tradition with the tub. He made the garage livable after that. He removed all the tools, blunt and sharp alike, screwdrivers, hammers, nails, chains, etc. Nothing I could hang, stab, or bludgeon myself with remained within my vicinity. He allowed me the bare essentials like a toothbrush, a small plastic tub he would refill with water every morning and evening before he left for work or a date. He hadn't introduced me to the young lady, but I was glad about that. I didn't need a beautiful woman paraded out before me. It would make me think of Amber and cause me to have another episode. What initially made me try to drown myself was the memory of when Riley, her, and I had upgraded our me memberships together to be super memberships at Neptune Fitness. Amber and I had just began officially introducing each other to other people as boyfriend and girlfriend. She had encouraged me to remove my shirt and just to float in the water. I did just that and would lay on my back, the cool water rolling, relaxing through the grooves of my fat folds. It was better than the massage chairs at the mall. The reason I started to drown was that I fell asleep in that relaxed pose at the gym. Since it worked so well then, I'd try it in a bathtub. More or less, it worked. Riley's tub was too small for me to submerge my entire body, so I had to extend my legs out over the bottom end of the tub and lean my upper body back as far as I could. Riley made the argument to the doctors that I didn't truly wish to die, because when he had stormed in, I had my hands on the edges of the tub and was trying desperately to hold my breath. He said that I had gotten stuck in the tub and that's why he had helped me out. The doctors didn't seem to disbelieve him, but they ordered the suicide watch instructions just to be on the safe side. And there's good reason to, in my opinion. I was a risk. The doctors knew it. Riley knew it. I knew it. The days after the suicide attempt were peaceful but long, warm but alone, boring but spent with a friend. I was losing a bit of my mind, pieces that were being swatted away like flies over a picnic table. 
The flies stopped and retreated to the sound of a phone call, and not to the house phone, to my cell phone. It was a call from Lex. Lex tells me that you're an honest hard worker, said Andre, Lex's brother. He was leading me through the halls of his moving company. It was just wide enough to let me through. There was only one long hallway that stretched from the front to the back where the loading trucks were. Andre ran a moving company called L.A. Carry and Storage. That's correct, I said. She also told me that you were cautious, steady, aware of your surroundings. I knew what he was getting at then and there. Yes, I'd be a careful mover. I won't drop boxes, break or damage valuables, and be careful of sharp corners and tables along my path. Andre smiled, pleased. Good. Now let me show you the trucks. He placed an arm around my shoulder like we were old buddies and continued to lead me toward the back lot of the building. I didn't want to get too familiar with him. I'd gained and lost a good number of friends in my life, and losing another one was going to break me, I suspected, so I kept my guard up. And while he was palling around with me, it made me think of Steve. Yes, I'd seen him on television with Wozniak. I wasn't blind to his technological rise through the midst of my turmoil. I knew long ago that he'd won the bet, but at this point, I wasn't sure that I'd keep up my end of the bargain. Yes, at one point, I had a shot, even though at the time I didn't much think of the bet. All I could see was red. Andre showed me around the entire office, welcomed me aboard, and then I had a new chance, a chance I didn't see coming. I would still be able to right the wrongs of my childhood and bear those trials with scars, but the summer had yet to end, and my revelation had not been discovered, but I'll jump straight to that point. I helped dozens upon dozens of families, all with three trucks or more worth of possessions. I didn't see the change coming because I wasn't looking for it, much in the way that I just happened across Dende the way I did. I had went to my new place that I had bought about three months into working for Andre. The suicide watch was suspended after a few therapy sessions, and a psychologist deemed me mentally fit. Well, enough that I was not at risk of throwing my life away. The therapist mentioned that they would want me to come back for follow-up meetings so they could maintain a consistent record of my mental faculties. In my new apartment, I had showered and noticed, for the first time, that it didn't take as long as usual. I usually have a good grasp of time, but I knew that I had washed all over, thoroughly as I normally would, but it didn't take as much time to do so. I went out and checked myself in the mirror. The slow changes had crept up on me. My muscles took to the exercise rules. Come in slowly and surely, and it'll be much easier of an impact when you go all in. Well, muscles couldn't just come all in. They're all gradual. I didn't know it until I had stepped on the scale. It was closing in on the fall of 2009, and I was under 300 pounds, like way under. I was just north of 250 pounds, and my arms and legs were looking thinner, leaner, more muscular.